0: Joshua 24. We're going to look beginning in verse 14, and let me just give you a little running start. This is the end of the book. We are now seeing Joshua's final words to his people. And all the chapters preceding this chapter have been detailing God's sovereign faithfulness, His providence, His goodness, His grace to His people. In fact, He recounts it in these first 13 verses in chapter 24. But that was the sermon last week. Today we find a pivotal, critical phrase that you see at the beginning of verse 14. Why don't you stand with me and we'll read it together. Joshua 24, beginning, beginning in verse 14. I want you to see the weight and wonder of now, therefore. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house will serve the Lord, so says Joshua. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt. He brought us out of the house of slavery. It's He who did those great signs in our sight. It's He who preserved us in all the way that we went, among all the peoples through whom we passed. And it's the Lord that drove out before us the peoples. He drove out the Amorites who lived in the land. So therefore, we'll also serve the Lord, for He is our God. Verse 19 is about the last thing you would expect Joshua to say. For Joshua retorts, you're not able to serve the Lord. You see, he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He's not going to forgive your transgressions. He's not going to forgive your sins. If you forsake the Lord and you serve foreign gods, then he's going to turn and do you harm. He's going to consume you after having done good to you. And the people said, no, we'll serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you're witnesses against yourselves. You've chosen to serve him. And the people respond, we are witnesses. And so he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, the Lord, our God, we will serve. In his voice, we will obey. Let's leave the rest on the shelf. We'll come back to it in a moment. Why don't you join me now as we pray. Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and open every eye in this room to see that Israel's history of grace, Israel's long story of your faithfulness is our story. You have been good. You've been gracious. And I pray we would feel the weight of the now, therefore. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, Jesus is way more than you may realize. Sixteen years ago next month, the Lord called me to be a pastor. I'll never forget it. And in particular, one thing I recall very clearly is that my call to pastoral ministry some 16 years ago was a call to help people see that Jesus is far greater, far more glorious, far bigger than most of us realize. God had done that for me as a teenager. He opened my eyes to see Him, and I want others to see Him. He opened my eyes to see that yes, He is Savior, but He is more than Savior. He is sovereign. Yes, He is a glorious Redeemer, but He is more than Redeemer. He is ruler. Yes, He is a gracious God. Praise be to Him that He is a gracious God, but He is more than gracious. He is great. He is indeed a merciful God, but my friends, He is also at once in the same time a mighty God. Praise be to God that the Lord that the God who saved me is a loving God, but He is more than just love. He is indeed Lord. Jesus is Lord. The Scripture mentions this some 742 times just in the New Testament, that Jesus is Lord. A succinct summary of who He is. God Himself attests that Jesus is Lord. In Acts 2, He says it is God who has made this Christ Lord. Jesus described Himself as such when in that great commission He says, "...all authority in heaven and on earth has been given Me. I am Lord of the universe." The Scripture is actually clear that if you are in Christ in this room, every last one of you has confessed in truth that Jesus is indeed Lord. For the Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 12 that nobody can describe Jesus as Lord apart from the Spirit of God working within you. It's impossible to say it with truth. And we as believers take hope that one day every other individual in all creation will join in our confession that Jesus is Lord. For as you well know, Philippians 2 says that one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. But mark this down. If He is Lord at all, He must be Lord of all. That means if He is sovereign over all, He is sovereign over you. If He is great over all, He is great over you. If He is reigning over all things, He is reigning over you, my friend. If He is indeed the Lord of the universe, then He must by definition be your Lord. The Lord of your life. In other words, let's just make this as clear as possible. The good, great, gracious, merciful, loving God of the universe has a claim on you. I don't think it's inappropriate to say that He has a demand on you. You see, for 210 chapters, that's how many chapters into the Bible we are right now. For the last 210 chapters, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, He has been establishing like nailing nails into a board. He has been establishing, I am good, I am great, I am faithful, I am kind to you, I am merciful to you, I am a loving God. But now, in Joshua 24 and verse 14, He finally pivots. And with this great now therefore, He now says in light of my good grace to you. Hickory Grove, in light of how good I have been to you. Now, therefore, I have a few demands. Now, therefore, I have a call in your life. Now, therefore, my grace demands a response. I want you to see it like this. I I couldn't think of a better way to summarize this. I think the, the feel of verses 14 and following in this final chapter of Joshua is that the Lord of all demands all of you. He demands all of you. Every last piece of you. This this verse 14 of chapter 24, it's kind of like that great Romans 12 moment. Do you guys remember as we preached through the book of Romans for the first 11 chapters, it's just a whole bunch of doctrine, a whole bunch of wonderful, glorious, foundational doctrine. And then in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Now, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices. It's that great transition. That is what's happening in chapter 24 and Verse 14. Joshua, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying, now come and see what Christ has called you to. Come and see. I just want to invite you very briefly as we begin looking at this text, just like verses 1 through 13 did, I I challenge you to do as I did this week. Just go home and write out your life story in light of God's grace in your life. So, by God's grace... God called me to this church. By God's grace, He gave me a precious wife. By God's grace, He gave me a beautiful daughter. By God's grace, fill in the blank. And then end your story with a now therefore. And it'll give you some weight to this text we're about to unpack. For the now therefore, the demands of grace that God has placed on our life are, in my judgment in this text, twofold. Two broad demands God has on our lives in light of how good He's been to us. If you're taking notes, mark this down. Firstly, He demands your devotion. He demands it. Look, if you will, at verses 14 through 18. And I want you to see that He reveals in these few verses a series of commands through simple little words. And I want you to circle, underscore these words, and see with me the weight of his demand here. Verse 14, he says, now therefore fear the Lord. We're going to come back to this, but that fear is referring to what's going on within you. What is your heart's disposition towards God? Fear the Lord. The latter half of verse 14, he says, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Now he's moving from the heart to the mind. He's talking about the way you think, what masters your mind. And then later on in that most famous of probably all the verses in Joshua, arguably other than maybe the few in the first chapter, is that famed verse that may very well be hanging on your kitchen wall where he says, choose this day whom you will serve. He's now speaking of our will. In other words, what God has done through his servant Joshua, is he has shown that in light of how good he's been to us, he is asking all of us to now sit at his feet and recognize he has demands on us. He is calling us to reckon with the fact that his demands are total. He as Lord wants all of you. He wants your heart, your mind, your will, all of you. Mark these down firstly. He demands a devoted heart. The word fear in verse 14. Fear the Lord. That's a strange statement. You've heard it before if you've been in a church, but it still ought to strike you as somewhat odd. Fear the Lord? That is referring to a posture of the heart. Whenever the Scripture says Fear the Lord, it does not mean cower like you would at a boogeyman. It is referring to a disposition of your heart, the way your heart responds to the Lord. It's in other words describing a heart of reverence or of awe before Him. Psalm 112 and verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who fears Him, who fears the Lord. Psalm Proverbs 19 and verse 23 says the fear of the Lord leads to life. Luke tells us in chapter 1 and verse 50 that the mercy of God is for those who fear Him. And Peter says it succinctly in 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, fear God. But what does that mean? How can we fear one we've been called to love? Doesn't that feel like a contradiction to you? I think it would be best uh, compared to maybe the fear a pilot has for gravity. He's not too scared to get up in the airplane. He just has a healthy respect for the fact that if he doesn't pay attention, gravity will always win. It's a fear. It may be similar to the fear a child has for a loving father. Any child in this room should have a healthy amount of honor and deference, respect. I may dare go so far as to say awe for a good, loving, gracious father. It may be similar to the fear a citizen of any nation would have for a dignitary. Maybe the fear a citizen of these United States might have for the man who holds the office of the presidency. It's one of reverence, generally speaking, it's one where you just recognize there's a whole lot that came into you getting this role. There's an awe involved. It may be even similar to the awe a, a husband may have for a wife. It's a fear, a, a healthy type of awe where you recognize she is a precious gift and I have a weighty responsibility to steward this gift till death do us part. It's a healthy sense of awe. My friends, now therefore fear the Lord. He is after your heart. And just remember the scripture is clear that he detests. He detests an undevoted heart. It's why he repeatedly says, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He doesn't take any pleasure in this. Rather, he demands a devoted heart. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible is Isaiah 66 and verse 2 where he says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, he who is contrite in spirit, and he who trembles at my word. Fear the Lord. Number one, he demands your devotion. In first case, a devoted heart. But he changes tune slightly, and you may not have noticed this, for in the latter half of verse 14, he moves from the heart to the mind. Number two, I want you to mark this down. He demands also a devoted mind. Look, if you will, at verse 14. He says, Serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Okay, now that word serve may strike you as something more to do with your hands. You know, a servant and somebody that does things. But in the original language, what's behind this word serve is an inward sense of resolve, honor, homage, worship. In other words, we kind of lose it in this text. When he says serve the Lord, he doesn't mean just go break down tables. Give out food. He is talking about a heart, a, a an inner mind, an inner being. He's talking inwardly here. And he is saying, I want you to show loyalty, honor, and respect towards me. And he clarifies. And he says, with sincerity, which means it's not lip service. And with faithfulness, which means in truth. In, in other words, what he's doing here is saying... I want you to serve me with your mind. I don't want you to just merely serve me with your lips. I want all of you. I want your heart and I want your mind here. Now, you can have right doctrine. Many of you in this room do. You can know the right things, believe the right things, say the right things. But if your life doesn't demonstrate the radical transforming work of God in your heart... You are a hypocrite, the Bible says, which I believe is why Joshua, under the inspiration of the Spirit, clarifies. And he says in verse 14, put away the gods that your father served. Put away, throw away, change your mind. That's where we get the word repentance. Turn, throw it away, stop living and flirting and going with the idols. Run from them, change your mind. The inward change of your mind, which is demonstrated by the word serve, is going to be demonstrated through your outward repentance, through putting away all the idols. Now just consider with me, because for most in this room, idolatry seems like a kind of a silly thing of the past. But of course you know an idol is in essence anything. You worship, love, serve, respect, prioritize, desire more than God. It's what you think about when you wake up what you daydream about at work. It's that thing you prioritize when you get home at night. It's what you dream about in your sleep. An idol is those things that you can't imagine losing. It's your priority. If you need help, which disclaimer, this could be tough. If you need some help, discerning your priority, your idol? Just go ask your children. What is it that I seem to take more seriously than anything else? What are those things that mommy or daddy seems to really prioritize? What's important to me? Ask your spouse. I'm not looking at Lauren right now. (laughs) Tough words from Joshua. Serve the Lord. Put away all the idols. Secondly, he calls us to give ourselves in full devotion to the Lord with a devoted heart, with a devoted mind, and lastly, a devoted will. For you notice in that famed verse, in verse 15, he says, if it's evil in your eyes to do this. Okay, that's a really weird way of saying, if you don't like the prospect of having to devote your mind and your heart to God, If that seems undesirable to you, which I suspect for some in this room with integrity, you could say, that doesn't seem all that great to me. I'm not sure I'd like that. If that seems undesirable to you, he warns us threefold. He gives us a warning in this verse. Verse 15 and following. He says, firstly, you need to decide today. Choose this day. In other words, he's saying, be honest right now. Indecision is a decision. Decide. You know what happens when you stand in the middle of the road, you get hit, probably from both ways. You've heard the old proverbial saying, what happens if you're sitting on the fence? You only get one thing, splinters. Indecision is a decision. Decide, he says, decide this day. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of the Amorites, whether the gods of your career, whether the gods of your lusts and desires. Choose, he says, decide this day. Determine, he says, secondly, for Joshua says, ask for me at my house. We're not going to serve the gods of the Amorites. We're not going to serve the gods beyond the river. We're going to serve the Lord. Now, inherent in Joshua's statement was a stand of courage. Joshua had counted the cost and said, Come what may, I am going to stand for the Lord in the midst of a Canaanite land. He joined the ranks of Noah, who stood against the grain in the days of the flood. He stood in the ranks of David who stood against all those cowering men before the giant Goliath. He stood with Elijah, who stood amongst all those cowering people before the prophets of Baal. He stood with Daniel, who risked life and limb in the lion's den for standing for the God of Israel. Choose this day whom you will serve, Hickory Grove, as for me and my house with great determination we shall serve the Lord. Decide. Determine, And then you must dedicate yourself for... You probably missed it. In the original language, when he says, we will serve the Lord, that is present-future tense. What's happening there is it's basically saying, I was serving, I am serving, and I'm going to keep on serving Him. I will not waver. I will not vacillate. I will not dither. I will serve the Lord. I will worship Him with all of my heart, all of my mind... All of my will and the cry to us this day is that we fight this fight of faith and that we throw ourselves upon him. Devote yourselves to him. Okay. That was a lot. And if you were listening, maybe the last 15 minutes or so have felt like a a weight. Maybe a, a little condemning. You're like, Kyler, I I know God's been good to me. I see the now therefore. I want to fear him. I I want my heart to be devoted to him. I want my mind to be devoted to him. I want my will to be devoted to him, but I feel paralyzed by this message. For when I look within, I do not see a life fully, fully devoted to him. You see, my heart is prone to wander. My mind is prone to idolatry. My will's prone to waver. Indecision is often my decision. Which is why I believe Joshua responds the way he does in verse 19, which is one of the more stunning verses in my judgment in all the book of Joshua. For in verse 19, in fact, I found the Bible that I first read through as a teenager. I have the, it's sitting on my desk here at the church. And I read through it randomly as I was preparing the sermon, and I found my original notation from 16 years ago And I wrote right next to verse 19, huh? With an exclamation point and a question mark. What? For in verse 19, notice what he says. Joshua, after all the people said, we're going to do this, we're going to devote ourselves. Joshua says, you are not able to do this. Talk about a deflating response. Like a football coach with two minutes left in the game, calling a timeout, trying to rally his team and says, guys, we're down by a touchdown. Let me break it to you. We're done for. <laughs> it just seems odd. Why would Joshua say this? Because what I think Joshua is illuminating is a tension we should feel in the Bible. It's a tension between our responsibility and God's sovereignty. It's a tension all of us in this room should feel between our sense of being called to devote ourselves to God, and the fact that we need to depend on God to have any hope of devoting ourselves to Him. It's the tension all of you in this room feel when you see the Bible say, grow in grace, and you realize your only hope of growing in grace is if God gives you the grace to grow. You see how it feels circular? It's the tension all of us see in Philippians 2 and verse 12 where God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? And then he says, for it is God who works within you. It almost feels nonsensical. I want you to see, secondly and finally, that the two claims of Christ on your life, in light of His great grace, is number one, you He demands, I should say, your full devotion. And secondly, He demands your full dependence. And I want you to see how glorious this latter half of this text is. He demands our dependence. How can God demand the impossible? He can, because He demands dependence. In other words, God gives us the grace to make possible the impossible. He is sustaining every last one of you in this room to devote yourselves to God. And He does so, in my judgment, through at least two graces that we see inferred in this text. Firstly, I want you to see, depend on His his work. Depend on His work. Notice how Joshua responds in verse 19. When he says, you're not able to serve the Lord, what's His reason? It says in verse 19, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. In other words, what he's doing here is he's saying, evidently Israel took their commitment a little too lightly. They were a little too casual, a little too carefree, a little too cocky. They just kind of thought, well, of course I'll devote myself to God. And he says, well, let me remind you, you're actually totally, completely unable to do this. It was similar to the apostle Peter. You all remember Peter? Right before Jesus was crucified, he says, I'm going to go with you to prison and to death, Lord. And then what happens? The next paragraph, he denies the Lord three times. Joshua is saying, remember who you're devoting yourself to. This is the holy God of the universe. He is holy. That means he demands perfection. That is a demand none in this room can ever hope to achieve. This is a jealous God. That's a strange word probably best defined as a zealous God. That means he is passionate about his glory. God is by definition not an idolater. He would never allow you or anything in all creation to put anything before him. So he is rightly jealous, zealous for his own name. That's what makes him God. And he is saying, I'm holy. I demand full perfection. I am a jealous God. That means I demand that you worship me and me alone. And if you'll notice in verse... 20, he says, if you forsake the Lord and you serve foreign gods, I'm going to turn and do you harm. Which sounds awfully strong, but God is illustrating that he is, thirdly, a just God that he is a God that will not look over sin. He will not take it lightly. So this is horrible news for all of us in this room. For if God has said, I've been really good to you, now therefore I want you to devote yourselves fully to me. I want your mind, I want your heart, I want your will. And hey, guess what? You're utterly, completely unable to do that. And that's bad news because I am a holy God. I demand that you do this. I am a jealous God. I require that you do this. And I am a just God. I will punish you if you don't do this. This, my friends, is what makes Christianity good news unlike every other religion in all world history. For the gospel of Christianity is the gospel that Jesus Christ did all of that. That Jesus came and was holy when we couldn't be. Jesus came and was zealous for the glory of God in a way we've never been. Jesus came and fulfilled the just wrath of God for us. Jesus came to save you from verses 19 and 20. Jesus nullifies, so to speak, verses 19 and 20. Jesus came to save us. So my friends, you need to depend on Jesus' work. Are you leaning on Him right now as Lord? So often I have people come to my office questioning their salvation. And my response is almost always something along these lines. Are you right now trusting that Jesus is your only hope? Is He Lord in your mind and heart now? Are you depending on His work now? Not did you at one time? Not were you baptized at one time? Are you just trusting Him? Do you recognize that apart from His work, you have no hope? You see, if He is Lord at all, He must be Lord of all of you. I want you to see that we must depend on His work. And lastly and briefly, we should depend on His word. Let me just take your eyes down to verse 24. In brief summary of all these verses, verses 21 and following, verse 24, they respond after kind of going back and forth with Joshua. And in verse 24, they say a little statement that you should underscore. Circle. For in verse 24, the people said, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. His voice we will obey. What is Joshua saying here? Joshua is making clear that the people knew that they needed to depend on God to be gracious to them, that they could not keep this on their own, and they were going to need to hear God continuously speak to them. They could not just wipe their hands clean and say, I'm good. They needed to relate to him. They needed God to speak to them. They needed God's word, which I believe is why right after verse 24, notice what happens. It says Joshua makes a covenant with him. And then he does something not unusual for this book, but unusual for us. It says in verse 26, he wrote these words in the book of the law and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth, that's a tree, That was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it's heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke against us. In other words, what Joshua does in this moment is he takes the Bible, he takes the words of God, and he puts it in such a way that they can't help but see it and be reminded of it. Now, why do we not have a big old stone erected right here? Because you have it in your lap. You have been given an inestimable gift in the Word, and it's confronting you this day. My question is are you reading it? Are you listening to the voice of the Lord as Joshua and the people said they would? Are you listening to His voice? Are you responding to the Word proclaimed and the Word read? Are you asking God to uproot sin in your life, to put away the idols of the past? Are you remembering it? Are you looking to it daily? As Israel looked at the stone erected as a memorial, are you looking to the Word? For God has spoken to you graciously in it. Oh, I pray you see just how much you need this book. This Bible is your life. If you want to grow in grace, if you want to devote yourself to the Word, if you want to depend on God in any meaningful sense, try doing so without giving yourself to this book. God has been good to you. Yours is a history of grace. And like verse 28, which feels kind of like an anticlimactic end to this book, verse 28 Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So too has he you. He saved you, he's called you, and he has sent you. Now you're at peace, which seems awfully nice. In fact, Verses 29-33, through see more. All the more nice. It's three funerals. You see Joseph's funeral. Joseph walked with God. You see Joshua's funeral. He was a servant of the Lord, the Scripture says. You even see a priest, Eleazar. He had a funeral. All these godly men were buried, and it says that all was well in the land of Israel, that they were walking with God. Except... These verses are, in my judgment, like the calm before the storm. For if you just turn your page, and I won't ask you to do so, because we're not going to the book of Judges yet, next. The first page of the book of Judges says that all these people that came after Joshua, this new generation that arose, did not know him, turned their back on him, took back their idols did not devote themselves to Him, did not depend on Him. They turned their back. They presumed upon the riches of God's grace. They grew at ease in God's grace, which, my friends, is the great temptation of all of us in this room to grow easy with God's grace, to hear it proclaimed from the pulpit week in, week out, and to yawn as it were, If you are in Christ this Lord's Day, in my opinion, the great call of Christ to you from this text is to see that there is a God who is Lord. He is Lord of all, and He demands all of you. This moment, He is demanding your devotion in mind, heart, and will. And He is demanding your dependence on His work and on His Word. So throw yourself upon His mercy and resolve anew today. Now therefore, O God, I will fear You. I will serve You. I will lean on You. O God, I will trust that You, a holy and jealous and just God, will do for me what I cannot do for myself. Would You give Yourself anew in devotion to God? But for some I trust in this room who have never done this. You don't know Him. You know of Him, you don't know Him. I believe the call for you is that you hear anew that there is a sovereign God who will save you. There is a mighty God who will be merciful to you. There is a great God who is extending grace to you. There is a ruling, reigning God who will redeem you. There is a Lord who loves you. Love so amazing, so divine, as the old hymn says, it demands my heart, demands my soul, and it will demand your all. If God is Lord at all, He must be Lord of all. Would you join me as we pray? With their heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment. God's grace demands a response in your life this moment. Maybe tangibly. We're going to sing in a moment and you may just need to come down here and pray. I and others are down here. We're down here because we want to pray with you. Some of you may need to just remain seated in your chair crying out to God to do a renewing work in your heart. To put away idols and to fixate your mind, heart, and will on Him. In a moment after I pray, we're going to sing of His faithfulness. Let's cry out together and respond to His good grace. Father in heaven, do this. My words are feeble. Inarticulate, I cannot do this in and of myself. So by the power of your spirit, move in this room so that all of us anew will see that you who are Lord of all demand all of us, every last part of us. So seal this to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing. As we sing, let's proclaim his faithfulness to us.